0: Well howdy everybody.
1: Howdy. (laughs) It's three o'clock
0: here in Texas.
1: Yes it is. Right
0: so yeah so we're glad everybody is here today.
1: We sure are. Um, It was uh, good seeing a lot of people at church yesterday. Yes
0: I felt like the 930 service was well attended. Class was well attended both in person and online and and it was just great to see everybody and be out moving around everybody again. I guess this Sunday we're going back to normal communion, normal right? Normal
1: communion we haven't done for two years. They've been
0: they've been polling us to see yes. who would be available to serve communion. So yes, we're going back to I normal think it, communion. It was two on Sunday. years ago,
1: March. We had the first Sunday in March where we had communion in 2020.
0: So that's kind of a real marker. For that me, is, it's a real going marker. back to normal communion. Yes. So anyway. Yeah.
1: So we're glad to see everybody who's online today. Thank you. Norm, it was great seeing you out walking with your new knee yesterday. <laughs> I've seen Doug with his new knee a couple times. So wonderful. We have all these bionic friends. Yeah, we Love have a lot it. of bionic friends too. We now. do. The we miracles do. of modern science. Yes. There we go. It's yep. a good thing. It is. It's so it's wonderful. I mean, I know it's tough when we've been very blessed and haven't had to have um, any kind of replacement surgery yet, but... It's just so great. I mean, I know that people suffer those first couple weeks pretty badly, but we see you guys again in a few weeks, and it's just amazing, right?
0: It's just amazing. Just just
1: amazing. So anyway, I just brought a little snapshot of, we have a little teeny weather station thing in our kitchen that Scott bought me a couple years ago, and tomorrow it's supposed to be 70, and then 75 and 75 and like 73. Oh. So, you can imagine what I told him I saw in my
0: future. (laughs) I bet it's going to (laughs) happen.
1: Yeah, so anyway, Anyway. we just thank you all for being here today. And I know that um, Scott's got a good class, prepped, prepared. We're in
0: Isaiah. It's In some ways, it's almost like ripped from the headlines. But in any event, let's pray. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful that we could gather this way. It's, we're grateful that we can gather in peace. What a privilege it is. What a blessing it is. It's sort of driven home to us now. And um, our hearts are concerned for the people of Ukraine. Our hearts are anxious and worried um, because people are talking about nukes and all this other stuff that just, just shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And uh, but we're grateful that we can come together like this, to study your word, to embed ourselves in Scripture, um, and to remind ourselves that indeed, this is your world, and that um, uh, that one day all will be right and everybody will see it everybody will know it all this we pray in the name of jesus amen amen okay patty's gonna go time. around so i probably say that every week don't i everybody every week i say patty's gonna go around
1: yeah so how many times <laughs> would that have been overnight? well we
0: started this um let's say the first week ended the first week of april 2020 Okay. So we are closing in on two years, you know. Yes. But I think my Tuesday class is going to be back in soon, very right. soon.
1: That is wonderful.
0: Yeah. Um, I just have to go down and make sure they really do have all the tech stuff set up. So I will uh, uh, endeavor to get that done this week or next week, and we can get going on Tuesdays. But the Monday classes, as I said, it's just going to need to stay here. It's just kind of just just a an acknowledgment and and trying to be smart about, you know, how much I can do. So, here we are. So, let's see we are in Isaiah and we are coming up to Isaiah chapter 6 and 7. And I brought a map and I brought some um uh, uh, historical stuff because well, it is a little bit, you'll see as we get into into this section, it is a little bit ripped from the headlines, I think, in some ways. And um, it's also important that we remind ourselves always that the pages of Scripture do not float above the happenings in this world, that... that Scripture comes to us, um, is given to us, is passed on to us by real people in real places at real times, and and it's, sometimes things go well for them, and sometimes they go terribly for them, and um, many times their fears are our fears, and our fears are their fears, and and so you just can't you just shouldn't rip scripture apart from that you can, you you shouldn't rip it apart from the context right you lose so much of the richness so much of the so much of the meaning behind it um if you don't if you don't put a little effort into understanding who wrote this right and when they wrote this so you're going to see so for example we are at chapter 6 in isaiah Last week, we did the fruitful, the unfruitful vineyard, really, is what it was about. God plants a vineyard, and it's, of course, a metaphor. The vineyard is Israel, and how disappointed God was in Israel. He wanted good fruit, and instead he got bad fruit. Well, this week, it, the whole thing kind of changes, because now we come to this uh, commissioning of, of Isaiah. That's what chapter 6 is, largely, a commissioning of Isaiah. And so it's a natural thing to ask yourself, well, is this his initial commissioning? If so, why is it in chapter 6 and not back at the beginning like Jeremiah's, like in the book of Jeremiah? Um, And when you add it all up and you look at the different people who have spent much of their lives studying Isaiah, by and large, most think that this is not his initial commissioning. This is like a recommissioning. Um, for the work that he is going to have to do with um, the king of Judah, right? So this comes it as it is placed in the book on the scroll. It comes um, after he has already been working as a prophet, right? Like we get in chapters well, some of the some of the messages, these oracles we get from God through Isaiah in chapters one and two and three and four and it's preaching about the the fruitful vineyard and the rest. Okay, so we come to chapter six though, and it's a powerful story. It's a powerful vision. It's 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 famous. We've preached on it. I've preached on it at St. Andrew in years past. So um with that said, go ahead and turn your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. We're only going to get about half a sentence in and then we're going to have to stop. But we'll do that. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord. Okay, King Uzziah's death. So we need to mark that, really, because it's, there's a story that's going to be happening here. So I brought a slide with a map and actually a few other things on it. And we'll probably come to it a couple of times today. So this map here is the illustration of the nation of Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They are all Israelites. Okay? They are all descendants of Abraham, but they are in two kingdoms. They had been this way for nearly 200 years and there have been kings of the north and kings of the south kings of israel and kings of judah if you remember to week one back to week one i said that isaiah was a prophet who worked in the kingdom of judah okay um king uzziah was a king of judah and King Uzziah, who died, look to the dates are on the slide, he died in 740 B.C. Now, he had been on the throne a long time, like 52 years. The first few years, he had been a co-regent because of his youthfulness, I think with his father. In his last years, he was a co-regent because of his failing health with his son, Jotham. But Uzziah dies in 740, which is a good time marker for us. Um, and we'll come back to the rest of those dates when we get to, get to chapter 7, as well as the arrow, which is pointing us to Aram. Um, I'll bring the arrow out because this is coming to us um, from 740 BC, when to the north of Israel, there's just lots of big enemies. The Assyrian Empire is lurking up there just to the north of Israel. That's what made me think of the headlines, right? So it's, it's like Russia, this, this big country lurking there, just to, the, just to the north of Ukraine. Well, the big empire of Assyria is lying there just to the north of, of Israel. And it's about 740, so we're still, we're about 18 years away from the final destruction of the Northern Kingdom. At the hands of of Israel, so in any event, we can. I'll, we'll go back to the scripture. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the empire. the The hem of his robe, if you want to think about it that way. Filled, filled the temple, filled the temple. So, first of all, where is, he, where is Isaiah when he has this vision? Well, most think, I think it's, we'll take the simplest explanation that he is in the temple, okay? And he has this vision of God in the temple. And what sort of vision is it? It's a vision that em- emphasizes God the sovereign, God the king, because it's, focused on God, it's focused on his throne, it's focused on his robe. Now, why does it say something like, the hem of his robe filled the temple? Because you see, God is too big for the temple to be contained by the temple. That's the idea. I mean, this is, this is not a God who's going to be contained and held within a building Is Many of the pagan gods were thought to be in some way. No, this is this is a mighty god. The best you can do is keep his hem in there, or the train, you know, the little part that kind of trails behind when the king is walking along. But it's it's this is a vision, very most much focused on the sovereignty and holiness of God. Verse two, above him. Isaiah, writes Now, you got to understand, I mean, Isaiah is having a vision, right, that he is now trying to reduce to words. So that isn't easy. You know, like, most, like nearly all these visions in the Old Testament, I see people who will try reducing them even to two-dimensional art. It doesn't work too well. It's, it's, it's better that we have the words and we let our own minds just absorb them and imagine as best we can with Isaiah, understanding that we don't really know exactly what he saw in his vision, exactly what he experienced in this in in these moments. So verse two, above him, above the Lord. I need my glasses on. <laughs> We're seraphim. Seraphim. Okay. This is the only place in the Bible where you encounter seraphim, which is taken directly from the Hebrew. The word, the Hebrew word, basically, seraphim, is brought into English as, basically, seraphim. So, um, they are spiritual creatures. Any reason to think they're divine? No, God is God. Everything else is God's creation. And in the Bible, you have generally three different, be a funny way to put it, three three different species of spiritual beings. You have seraphim, which you encounter right here and nowhere else. You have cherubim. Cherubim are guardians, often composed of different, animal parts and with eyes all around because they'll be the guardians posted at the Garden of Eden or posted around the throne of God looking in every direction. And then you have angels. And within the angels you have some angels who have chosen for God, which we call angels, and then you have some angels who have chosen against God, which we call demons. So there's this whole order of this whole set of spiritual beings. They're not God and they're not human. And they're not cows or dogs, all the rest of it, okay? They're not, um, they are they are other than us. But they're not God. And they're not divine. that That's a key piece. So the seraphim, okay, seraphim. All we can really say about them is what we learn about them from this passage. Above him were seraphim each with six wings. Okay, six wings. So the, all the wings are all going to signify something. They have two wings with which they covered their faces. Probably because being creatures, they need to be, even they need to be protected from the holiness of God. And that is expressed as being unable to see God's face. Uh, When Moses encounters God um, at Mount Sinai, Moses wants to see God, and and God says, No, you can't see me. You can't see my face and live. So so God tells him to hide in this place of the rocks, and God says, I'll pass by and you can see me from behind, but you can't see my face and live. So, that may be what the wings over the, the faces are about. They have two wings um, that cover their feet. Now, <coughs> this is where in a lot of study Bibles and other places, you'll encounter this idea that the feet are a euphemism for the genitals of the seraphim. And I've been familiar with that. I've I've probably taught it a few times in the past. I have left that idea. Um, There's no notion in this that the seraphim are sexual beings in the way that humans are sexual beings. Um... There's not any really strong basis for this idea that the feet were a euphemism for 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 genitals among the Hebrews. Just really not. And so so most of the scholars that you'll read today will try to steer you away from that idea. So why are they covering the feet? Maybe a little bit like the face, like their their face. They're covered up because, as signifying they can't even they can't even step on holy ground they're flying i grant you but it's the same idea moses you see can't step on his warned against the, stepping on the holy ground around the burning bush right the whole emphasis here is on god's holiness so that makes some sense to me that they cover their faces they cover their feet it's all an acknowledgment of the god being holy Right, in a way that even the seraphim are not, and the last two they were flying well, that's easier to get, okay, because for the ancients you see we're here, God is above, there's this you know that's we'll call that heaven, and we'll call this earth, and then there's the mid heaven, and that's where that's that's where they're flying and they're coming from, and it's why, um. They just fly like birds, I guess. I guess that's, that's the idea, because they're going to be flying around the throne here. You know, like so much of this, we have to be pretty humble in our interpretation. But anyway, so these, these seraphim. Six wings, two are the face, two are the feet, using the other two for flying, and they were calling to one another, What? Holy, 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 His Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. My favorite hymn growing up in the Episcopal Church was Holy, Holy, Holy.
1: My father's favorite hymn.
0: Exactly, Patty's dad.
1: At the Catholic
0: Church. At the Catholic Church, his favorite hymn was Holy, Holy, Holy. I just, you know, when, the, when we're in the church and everybody's standing up and the choir is big and we're singing Holy, 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 that is just a moment that gets me every time. Well, that's the seraphim flying around the throne, lifting up what? The holiness of God Almighty, Yahweh Almighty. Right? So much, <laughs> so much distance from little Isaiah. So verse 4, Isaiah writes, Well, at the sound of their at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. This is intense. These, in his vision, there are these theophanies of the presence of God and God's hugeness and mightiness and bigness and holiness. Everything is shaking. Everything is filled with smoke. The seraphim are flying around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And what is Isaiah's response? Absolutely the right one. Woe is me, I cried. Woe is me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Yahweh Almighty. He grasps the distance. He grasps the chasm between sinful Isaiah, sinful Israel, sinful humanity and this holy holy, Holy, holy God.
1: Andy, we're at chapter
0: 6, verse 3 and 4. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king The Lord Almighty. It's just a moment of deep recognition of how unworthy Isaiah is to be in this moment, to be before this throne of God. Even in this, you might say, well, it's just a vision. No, he knows how unworthy he is to be in the presence of God, vision or no vision. And he, rightly, feels lost, doomed. He's gonna, he's gonna burn up like somebody who flew too close to the sun. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, because up at the altar there is this. These coals of burning incense and stuff that are burning all the time. And so he brought, he, he flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. So the seraphim now is picked up this tongue, picked up this coal, brought it to Isaiah, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Fire purifies, right? Fire can be used to burn away impurities. We do it all the time with metals when we're uh, dealing with metals and the rest of it. Fire burns away impurities. It's what makes it a standard metaphor for for the... Um, washing away washing away the purification away from sin and that's what's in view here is is that isaiah by god's action by god's action alone through the seraphim that chasm you see has been closed his sin is atoned for He isn't ruined. He isn't doomed. He isn't going to to burn up as if he had flown too close to the sun. No. Not by by anything Isaiah has, has done. But it is by what God has done. By God's mercy and God's grace, God has given Isaiah this vision. And now in this vision, Isaiah has acknowledged his sinfulness, the depth of his sinfulness, and the depth of Israel's sinfulness. And yet, his sin has been atoned for. And atone is a word that means put at one with God. Because the whole point of the whole thing is for people to, to be put back at one with God, to be reconciled. So... How could that not be a signpost to Christ? It is for me. It is for me. It 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 is the it includes the acknowledgement of our sinfulness. It includes the desire of God to pour his mercy and grace out on us, and then our being put at one with God by God's graciousness. In this case expressed as a burning coal put to Isaiah's lips will later be expressed by um, being made clean by the blood of the Lamb, to use one New Testament Testament image. So look again at verse 7. See, here's what the seraphim says. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. He isn't guilty. His sin has been atoned for. The chasm between the Holy One of Israel and Isaiah has been closed in that moment. How could that be? It could only be because of the graciousness and mercy and love of God. That's the only way it could be. And then in verse 8, Then I, this is Isaiah speaking, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Famous line, hymns written with it, the rest. Who will go? Here am I, send me. Because this is is a commissioning. God is going to send Isaiah out to do some extremely unpleasant work. And... God merely asks the question and Isaiah steps up. And every time I come to this, I think about the contrast between Isaiah and Moses. Because when you go back to Exodus 3 and 4 and 5, what do you see in Moses? You see someone who wants to find any way out of it. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't speak well. He doesn't this. He doesn't that. People are going to ignore him. Yada, yada, yada. Not Isaiah. This is such an intense and overwhelming experience. Perhaps Isaiah has been brought to this moment in a way that Moses wasn't. But Isaiah doesn't hesitate. Here am I, send me. So, before we get to what God's going to send him out to do, which is tricky, I'm going to pause, see if there's any thoughts, questions.
1: We don't have any coming um today, Scott, from the group. We got a good sized group with us, but don't I don't see any questions.
0: Okay. Well, you've all sung the hymn. Here am I, Lord.
1: Here I am. yes, is it I, Lord? Yep. So this um I am I'm guessing, you know, you always when you would do your Bible um in six kind of in six-chapter things. Right, the six-act play. Six-act play. You would always show this um, scene where there was an actual chasm that had to be filled. So we know now that Jesus filled that yes. chasm for us. That So in this, since Isaiah, Jesus has not come yet, he, there hasn't been a Messiah yet, he sees this cleansing as... The, the the what filled the rift, what filled the chasm, was this coal, right? That was brought to him yes. by a seraphim and put yes. on his
0: lips. Yes, because fire purifies. Yes, that's why it's the uh, fire purifies. Like water washes away sin, same kind of water washes away sin. So it's a good metaphor for washing away sin. Fire purifies, so it's a good metaphor for 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 purifying Isaiah. Now, this, we're not talking here about the exact work of Jesus here in this moment, I but understand. it's in one of those signposts, you see? Yes, yes. You see, God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. God is a grace, God of love. And he provides atonement for Isaiah as God, through Christ, will provide atonement for us all. Right. So you see, it's one of those little, mm-hmm. one of those the, one of those moments that ends up making people write books where they talk about Isaiah as Christian scripture.
1: Right, the suffering servant and all of that. But right. Isaiah himself would have, um, he would be waiting for a Messiah to come, but he necess- not necessarily would have ever thought that Messiah was going to be God himself.
0: I don't think he's thinking in terms of a Messiah. You don't. The kingdoms okay. are all put together at okay. this point, Right. That, that That's kind of a later idea. Okay. That's kind of a later idea. Now, um, we're going to come to a passage today that is, again, a messianic passage. Does Isaiah see it that way? Maybe not. But that doesn't mean it isn't. Right. right. Right? As the prophets always are. They sort of see the immediate thing, yet looking back, we can see that, wow, there was a lot more to this. I don't know. Very good. Okay, so here is the mission there is you're gonna be hard pressed to find a passage that has been more struggled with by people and it's used it's used by Paul. it's used um, I think it's even used by Jesus. I'm not sure I should have checked that before today, but it is it is a difficult one and one that challenges interpretation. So here's what it is. So, so God God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I am, I am here, here am I, send me. And God says, go and tell the people. Go and tell the people this. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Isaiah, make the heart of this people calloused and their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their lips and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So you read that and you go, wait, wait, this is all backwards. It's backwards. He tells Isaiah, Go and tell the people this. Be ever hearing, but don't understand. Be ever seeing, but don't really see. Isaiah, make the hearts of the people callous. Make their ears dull, but close their eyes. Otherwise, well, I mean, what we don't want to have happen is that they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And if you are like me and nearly everybody else that comes to this passage, you're going, okay. Okay, what's up? Well, there are those who would say what is happening in this passage is that God is sending Isaiah out to pronounce judgment on a people who have already been judged. And God doesn't want them to repent or to hear or to turn away from their evil ways um, God wants them to stay faithless so that that judgment can be carried out. Hmm. And I have to tell you, I just think that has to be all wet. That just can't be it. That is not, that is not Jesus. Right? Throughout the Bible, the whole Bible's about people repenting. There's passages about God changing his mind about what's going to happen. He tells, um, he sends Isaiah to see King Hezekiah and tell Hezekiah, ah, Hezekiah, you're going to die from this illness. And then God changes his mind after Hezekiah prays and sends Isaiah back. Tell Hezekiah he's got another 15 years. So, no, it can't be. It just can't be that. It can't be that. It, I mean, that doesn't, fit with Jesus or anything else I find in the pages from beginning to end of this glorious library of writing. So I'm persuaded that what we're getting in this is a description of what happens when you take the word of God to a hard-hearted people who, even though Isaiah will preach to them, it will make their hearts even harder. Even harder. Even harder. And they won't hear. The, the, the confrontation with, with the good news puts them in a position of having to having to choose. And what do they want to choose? They wanna choose for themselves and they wanna choose against God. So. But I just don't see how it could be read as God not desiring people's repentance. What is, what is this all about? if it's not about God's desire for people to repent. Um, look at the story of Jonah. Jonah goes telling the people of Nineveh, God is pouring out judgment upon them. And they repent. Everybody repents. The king repents. Everybody, the entire giant city, the enemies of, of, of the Israelites, they all repent. And guess what? Judgment doesn't fall on them. Even though Jonah had gone there pronouncing it and he had he got mad at God about it saying to God come on you sent me there I preach judgment and yet how darn it all they all repented <laughs> you know and you read it you go like oh Jonah you know understand what's happening here so it's a very famous passage this passage right here verses verses 9 10. And I invite you to do some reading around on it. You'll encounter it at other places in Scripture. It's, it's a challenging thing. And I just urge you to just reflect upon the possibility that what is being described here is God's Word itself confronting people and that, and that making their ears calloused and their eyes blind. Right.
1: Linda put there that it reminds her of uh, verse nine. Reminds her one of Jesus's parables. Kind of like, be kind of like a mystery that you have. Not really mystery, but you know, something that you have to.
0: You have to. That's a, It's just a challenge. But yes. anyway, there we go. That's Isaiah's task. So whatever exactly we make of this, Isaiah's task is to go out and preach. Preach the word of God, bring the word of God to a people who don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it. And that, my friends, would be a difficult thing to do. So, being a smart guy, (laughs) Isaiah then says, Well, for how long, Lord, am I going to go out and do this? And God answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged. In other words, until the very, very end. Just keep bringing them the word. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And that is the same idea we did this last week. That stump with a seed, a branch, same idea, is about there always being a faithful remnant remnant from which a faithful people will emerge even after... Ruinous consequences fall on a faithless people. So that's quite a vision, particularly in, in, in verses one to one to eight. Quite a vision. Isaiah's commissioning. Okay, so anything about that, Patty? No. Okay, so now we're going to go on to um Isaiah chapter 7. So in Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to we're we're encountering events that are described in 2 Kings 16 because this is going to involve kings and empires and Isaiah and you and I could turn to 2 Kings 16 and read it. But it's kind of more interesting or you sort of get the theological point bigger and better right here in Isaiah. But I want to go back to my slide for a minute.
1: And Scott, Andy just put a comment up yeah. there. He said, you know, what we were just finishing up on. Isn't this pretty contrarian to the Bible, especially the New Testament?
0: Well, the yeah, if depending on how you read that. So, it, Andy, it's so it's like, Okay, so is God really, is this mission really one to make sure that people don't repent? Does that that really make sense in light of the rest of the scripture? Pretty much from beginning to end, not just the New Testament, pretty much from beginning to end. God's desire is for people to repent and return to God. So how much sense does it make to think That the commission given to Isaiah is to go out and make sure people don't repent. And I think when you run into that question, you realize, I need to rethink what those verses mean. What do those verses mean? Let, let, let Let me take a step back from them again. And could it be that when I... Someone think think of someone as sort of blithely going along through life, you know, yada yada, you know, not thinking about too much this or that, and then they're then they're confronted first with the bad news, right, that there's something wrong with them that they can't fix, something called sin, and then they're offered the good news. That God, God is their rescuer and their savior. Well, for a lot of people, I think, that may make them, it, it can cause them to turn away. It can make their hearts grow hard when they're actually confronted with it. Um, I was just reading, it was a tweet put up by Timothy Keller, famous uh, present-day author and preacher in New York City, who said, he said, you know, I, I meet many people who, who tell me that they're, they just sort of just had to leave Christianity. And then I ask them, well, why don't you tell me why you believed Jesus was resurrected? And then what led you to believe that he wasn't? And he said, I'm pretty much always told that's a good question because people don't think about it in those terms, but those are the right terms. And, um, so, I hear you, Andy, but that's what makes those verses so puzzling to people. Make We struggle with them, as we do other passages in the Bible. Okay, so let's go to chapter 7. Um, We're working our way to where we're going to have a, a Christmas moment, I guess I would call it. Here in a few minutes. So, but let me let me get you oriented again. Here's the map: uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Both kingdoms are still intact. Okay. Um, Uzziah died in 740. His son Jotham lived four more years, and in 736, Ahaz succeeded Jotham to be the king of Judah in the south. And a few years later, which this story is about, Ahaz appeases Assyria. And we're going to meet the king of Aram. Right there, where the that's the area right on the north side there. That's where the area is pointing to. You can see Damascus a little bit further north. And when you get up there, you are getting toward the land of the Assyrians. This big empire at the time. Just waiting to gobble people up.
1: So okay. this Ahaz is actually Uzziah's grandson.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. I use Uzziah's grandson. And he does a terrible thing in the eyes of God. So, chapter 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, as Patty just noted, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram... Red Arrow, (laughs) that kingdom of the north, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So that's a big summary sentence for what? That the kingdom of Aram in the north and the kingdom of Israel joined together to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. That's how bad things have gotten between the Israelites, between the kingdoms. And of course, the kingdom of Judah is real nervous about it, right? If you're, the, if you're the king of Judah and you have your northern neighbor Israel allying with the king of Aram further to the north and the two of them are going to put their armies together and march on your capital city of Jerusalem, well, you know what the geopolitics of that might imply. You're going to be really nervous and scared, and anxious. And the question is, well, what are you going to do? Okay? Now, verse 2. Now the house of David, uh, the royal court, the royal family of Ahaz in the south, was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, this does get confusing, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, so, okay, gotta, let me just do this again. Okay, um, Ephraim is the name of one of the northern tribes, and it is used sometimes as a name for the entire northern kingdom. That's what's happening. So Ephraim, is in this, in this sort of context, and it happens a lot in the Old Testament, Ephraim is a synonym for the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. Right. The okay? whole green section. All of that green stuff up there. So, the house of David, the royal court of Ahaz, down in Jerusalem, in Judah, was told, Aram has allied itself with Eph- Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. The trees as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Well, of course they are. Right? It's like having what? It's like having the entire superpower Russia on your northern border with 200,000 troops amassed. And you hear the engines start up. Well, you're going to be shaking, right? So this is how it is for the kingdom of Judah. Because the northern kingdom of Israel has allied itself with this other kingdom of Aram, and the two of them combined are now going to come against Judah, the kingdom of Judah. Geopolitics in the ancient world. Well, verse 3, Then Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jeshub to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field.
1: Isn't that funny? Such a detail.
0: Such a detail. Which helps to tell you what? It's real. That it's real. <laughs> right? Yeah. That that Isaiah is telling this story and he knows all the details. We don't know all the de- we don't know where all these places were. I don't think anybody knows what the launderer's field really is. But he did. And it was twenty-seven hundred, more than 2,700 years ago. So no reason we should know what it is. So, Mide, so it says, Isaiah, go me has at this particular place. And say to him, quote, This is Isaiah, right, speaking for God. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That would be the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Aram. These smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin. Saying, let us divide Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord, Yahweh Sabaoth is what that is in the Hebrew, says, it will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people, foreseeing the day when the northern kingdom is swept away. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. And then, this is the key, this is the key part of this talk that God has with Ahaz, the king of Judah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, Ahaz, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, faith in whom? I mean, faith always has to have an object. Faith in whom?
1: Yahweh.
0: Yes. If you do not stand firm in your faith, in Yahweh, in me, God is saying, you will not stand at all this is this is a constant theme through the old testament that the leaders of god's people were to think and operate differently they were to trust god in all things not their geopolitical machinations and ambitions and alliances and treaties and stuff. They were to trust God. If you do not stand firm in your faith, God says, you will not stand at all. So, again Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, right through Isaiah. Ask Yahweh, your God, now, this is, this is pulling Ahaz, reminding Ahaz that he's part of this covenant people with God. It isn't implying he's not Isaiah's God. No, it, it's just emphasizing. Ask, ask Yahweh, your God, for a sign, for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights, anywhere for a sign. So that, you will, so that you will stay faithful. That's what it's about, holding Ahaz to faith in God. And so God offers Ahaz the opportunity for a sign, which is rare. But Ahaz said, I, I, I won't ask. I, I hear what you're saying, God, but I'm not going to ask you for what you're telling me I should ask for. I will not put the Lord to the test, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6 something, where they're told, the Israelites are told, do not put the Lord to the test. Well, first of all, who is being put to the test here? Is it God that's being put to the test? It's Ahaz who's being put to the test. What's the other thing I can't, I, I can't escape. It's that even something that I would find in Deuteronomy 6 isn't the final story. Right? It isn't the final word. We can't we can't put God in a box. Right? A box defined by anything, really. I'm not sure. I guess maybe if you're gonna define it by love and mercy and grace, you could. But Yes, Deuteronomy 6 says, Don't put the Lord to the test. And when people do try to put the Lord to the test, it generally doesn't work out for well. But this is God Himself saying to Ahaz, You need to stay faithful, man. You need to stay fo- You need to stay with me. Stay with me. Stay faithful. Ask me for a sign. I'll I'll do something. Tell me to set a tree on fire. I'll set it on fire for you if that's what it takes. But you need to stay faithful. Because if you don't stand in faith, you won't stand at all. So, but Ahaz refuses. And Isaiah then says, Hear now, you house of David. Okay, so I guess I should explain that.
1: Yeah, and I do want to just make, folks, I just put a little note there. I noticed that we have lost a, a bunch of people again. Facebook is having some problems today. And, um, you can always switch over and, and pull us up on your Facebook, Facebook on your iPhone or your iPad. I don't seem to have any problems with that um, at and, all. But
0: and really, a lot of people could be doing it that way all the time.
1: They they could, but I just know what just happened here. Right. You know, that you cut off a bunch of times, and we lost about half the group. So
0: <sighs> Crazy. It is. So we're, we may end up looking at trying to switch over to YouTube live or something here because this is too aggravating for my blood pressure. Yes. <laughs> okay, so let me explain this House of David comment. There was once 200 years before the events we're reading about here when there was a united kingdom of Israel. The first king of the United Kingdom of Israel was Saul, The second king of the United Kingdom of Israel was David. The third king of the United Kingdom was Solomon. After Solomon's death, the the kingdom splits into two. But while David is king of the United Israel, in 2 Samuel 7, God comes to him and promises him that one from his family would always sit on the throne of Israel. And for the Jews that is lived out in the throne that is in Jerusalem, and that is the throne that is in Judah once the two kingdoms split. Okay, because Jerusalem is part of the kingdom of Judah. To go back to my to go back to my map here, Jerusalem is in the orange. Right? So the house of David is the royal line. Of David extending, and you can you could trace it in your Old Testament, from from person to per, king to king to king to king to king, from Uzziah to Jotham and now Ahaz. Some good, some not, all the way down. These are the kings of Judah that constitute the house of David, just like the house of Usher. Or the house of Gucci. <laughs> right? It's all about the family. Um, Ahaz has, has the blood of David flowing in his veins. He is part, he could trace his lineage in using, I don't know, ancestry or something, all the way back. It oh, doesn't even have to use that because it's all done for him in the Hebrew scrolls. All the way back.
1: Here's your reminder. I don't know, sorry. <laughs>
0: All the way back to to David. So, Isaiah is addressing the royal household, the royal family, the royal council of, of the kingdom of Judah in verse 13. So, Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore... THE LORD HIMSELF WILL GIVE YOU A SIGN. YOU WOULDN'T ASK FOR ONE, BUT THE LORD HIMSELF WILL GIVE YOU A SIGN. THE VIRGIN WILL CONCEIVE AND GIVE BIRTH TO A SON AND WILL CALL HIM EMMANUEL. HE WILL BE EATING CURDS AND HONEY WHEN HE KNOWS ENOUGH TO REJECT THE WRONG AND CHOOSE THE RIGHT for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste all right so
1: got a lot of people back in That's
0: the it. in the land in in the way the prophets see this the way they work there are these far reaching signs okay so There's obviously this far-reaching sign that was taken by the Christians, by Matthew, when he writes his gospel, that the virgin here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, is Mary, and that the son is Jesus, and that he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even though Jesus is never called Emmanuel in the in the Gospels, so I was interestingly John Henson came up to me on Sunday, because he had been studying in a course or something somewhere, and he wanted to talk about this word, "virgin," in verse fourteen. Because if you had an NRSV, you would find that it says "young woman," and yet in the NIV it says "virgin." And there's been a lot of ink spilt around that. And I will try to sum it up this way. The Hebrew word there is a word that could be used to describe a virgin, but not exclusively. It could be a young woman. But in almost all contexts in the Hebrew Scriptures that young woman is an unmarried young woman, which implies that she's a virgin because they weren't supposed to have you know sex until they were married. And I think that is such a strong connotation to the use of the word here that a couple hundred years before Jesus, when Jewish scholars took the Hebrew and they translated it into Greek right here in this place, the Greek word they chose to use was the word "parthenos," which means virgin. Period. It means virgin. So I think the translators of the NIV really get this right. I do think we should use the word "virgin" to to um, in this place and. I certainly can't help but given what Matthew and, and the others say, that to see Mary as this virgin and, and Jesus as the son, who will be called Emmanuel. All right? But in 736 B.C., nearly 750 years before Jesus was born. What did this mean to Isaiah? What did it mean to King Ahaz? What did it mean to the other members of the royal court? Scholars have searched high and low to find good candidates to be the woman and her child. And if you got a hundred of them in a room, you would have a hundred different answers. Which means they don't have a clue. So perhaps it's as simple as this. That Isaiah, just imagine, just just imagine a minute, that Isaiah is there before Ahaz and in the not too distance he sees a young woman and he says he says he says to Ahaz The Lord himself is gonna give you a sign, a virgin. You see that young woman over there, that maiden over there? She's gonna conceive and she's gonna give birth to a son, and she's gonna call him Emmanuel. And he'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the right, the wrong and choose the right. Which we raise our kids to do, right? We raise our kids to know right from wrong. For before the boy knows enough to choose to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Perhaps it's as simple as that. That if you went back to that moment and that time when Isaiah is confronting Ahaz, that... It's simply a young maiden not too far away that Isaiah sees and is speaking about. Could be. But the Christians rightly see this as something that Isaiah couldn't really comprehend. He didn't know what the state of the world would be 700 years hence. He would have no idea about Mary or or, or the name Galilee or any of that, right? But that doesn't mean that the words he brings are not a signpost to what God is going to do. That indeed, you know, the virgin will give birth to a son who will be God with us. So that's about the best I could do with verse 14. But it's it's a famous one, right? You hear it all the time. Okay, so look at verse 17. After the promise is made, that, you know, here's the sign, the land of the two kings you dread, it's going to be laid waste. Yahweh will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So, What is God saying to Ahaz? Ahaz, you need to stay faithful. You're tempted to run the geopolitical gamesmanship here. Don't do it. Put your trust in me. Because if you don't put your trust in me, it's going to turn right back on your head and Assyria is going to swallow you up too. And when Assyria comes marching southward and swallows up the northern kingdom of Israel, everybody assumes they're going to swallow up the southern kingdom as well. Verse 18. In that day, Yahweh will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices and the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. And that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head in private parts. (laughs) to cut off your beard. In that day a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place, where there are a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels, there will be only briars and thorns hunters will go there with bow and arrow for the land will be covered with briars and thorns in other words they won't be able to grow anything they'll only be able to hunt so as for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe you'll no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns they will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run so the he's saying you know if you go down this path of turning away from me and toward the king of Assyria, ruin awaits you. And yes, there will be people left back in the land because there's going to be this remnant preserved. But you're going to reap the whirlwind you're going to reap the whirlwind. See, Ahaz just, he you know, he just, what would, he, he was like Saul. I mean, King Saul, the first king of the United Israel, absolutely looked apart. He was tall, he was good looking, he was strong. He was all the stuff that you would think would constitute a king, he had except for one thing. He just really always could bring, he couldn't bring himself to always be obedient to God. He just, I guess this is what happens to kings. They just think they know better. And that's Ahaz. Isaiah comes to him, and he brings him God's word, <coughs> and Ahaz, and and tells Ahaz you need to stay faithful. Ask me for a sign, and Isaiah's not Ahaz is not going to do it. Ahaz is he's not, and he does it. He does end up appeasing, um you know, make trying trying to make happy with the Assyrians. And it's 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 to ruin. Okay, so I see it's about four fifteen. So we're going to stop there and pick it up next week. We're gonna talk about Isaiah and his kids and we're gonna be in this more of a narrative section for a little while here and then we will go back to um, more of the poetry, I guess. So any final thoughts or anything, Batty?
1: I was just going to ask you a question. Um, You know, of course we know about the kingdom being settled into or separated into the north and the south. What did foreign nations think of that? We know they thought the Israelites were kind of strange people to begin with. Did they view them as two different, separate kind of countries?
0: Yes. They did? Yes. Okay. And if you had a neighbor who was one big United Kingdom and then it breaks into two, what are you likely to think?
1: They're not probably very strong. You're going to lick your lips. Yep.
0: Right? Yep. Maybe you lick could get
1: lips. on one of their good sides. Or yep,
0: you're going to lick your lips. And which
1: is obviously what they're doing here. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And so it, I guess the message really there is, see, Ahaz finds it very tempting to to manage the affairs of state in the way the world does. But that's not God's way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's not God's way. God's way is to remain faithful and and to live as God said, even when it looks like that might not be the smart way to go because it's always the smart way to go so in any event okay wow but
1: us human beings have a long history of not always choosing the right. well you see
0: that's what we talked about before sunday (laughs) school class yesterday right yes even 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 coming to christ we're still we still carry the burden of sin with us right that causes us to make poor choices yes. even as I really think when you come to Christ you do end up making a lot more, a large, much greater number of better choices but yeah and, and just to deny the reality of sin is yes. foolish and it's in front of our face right now on the TV screens every minute
1: yes it is
0: so, Alrighty. will you close us I in prayer sure dear? I sure
1: will so um, Lord we, we, we do ask Lord today that you would Just help us to be peacemakers. Make us instruments, God, of your peace. And we do pray, God, every day. I know know we do. We pray every day, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives to help us make good choices, little ones and big ones. And we just pray, God, that it will become such a habit to try to do your will that We won't even have to think about it too often it'll it'll just be the choices that we make god in our lives we pray god that you would watch over our bible study group today our families and our friends we are all a little bit unnerved lord uh, to put it mildly about what is happening in the world we pray god for your peace the peace that passes all understanding and we pray god for those in ukraine tonight who are suffering who are scared, who are alone, who are facing consequences right now that we truly can't even imagine. We could see it on TV, but it's hard for us to really put ourselves in that position. And we pray, God, for you to soften the hearts of those that are causing all this pain and all this destruction, Lord. It seems like a problem, God, that we truly do need you, Lord, to help us come out with a good outcome. Um, you know, the there's just, there's just so much destruction that could possibly happen, Lord, and we are praying for you to intervene. We pray, God, for your peace in the world right now in Ukraine and, Lord, in each one of us. Lord, we lift up all of these prayers to you this afternoon, and we pray them all in the great and glorious name of your Son, the Peacemaker, Jesus. Amen.
0: Okay, adios, everybody. Bye, friends. Bye, friends.
1: See ya tomorrow, maybe. Yeah, we got John. (laughs) We have John at noon. Bye.
0: Bye, bye.